0: Let us now open God's holy word, and we will read three passages, the first two passages (coughs) from the letter of Paul to the Romans, chapter 10 and chapter 11, and the third reading will be from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 15. So from Romans 10, we'll read the verses 5 to 13. So Romans 10, beginning at verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, "Whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame." For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is, over, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's turn now to the next chapter, Romans 11. We read the verses 11 to 24. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is richest for the world and their failure richest for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For If their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God, on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more? will these who are natural branches branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? And now we turn to the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. That's part of the scripture reading. Now, this was the background to what we confessed together in Lord's Day 7. Lord's Day 7. And there we confess... Are all men then saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? No, only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. What is true faith? True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. What then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary, and then follow the articles which we already sang in our Confession, earlier in this worship service. After the sermon, let us sing together hymn 52, the stanzas 1 and 2. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the year 2017 has been the anniversary year of 1517, the year that on October 31st, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the Church Door in Wittenberg, or at least the story goes he nailed those theses. One thing is for sure, he did write those theses and he did publish those theses. Now, when it comes to the Reformation, that kind of came out of that whole decision to post those theses. Luther wouldn't have anticipated that, but it did come about. The whole teaching of the Reformation often has been kind of summed up in those five sola statements. Maybe the children from school would even know them. Sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, soli deo gloria. Only scripture, only by faith, only out of grace, only in Christ and all to the glory of God. Now it's interesting that our catechism, though it was written some 50 years after the publishing of Luther's thesis, when you look at the catechism, you will time and again notice that these emphases that Luther came up with are also reflected in the catechism. Though the catechism, you could say, is more rooted in the Calvinistic Reformation. It's remarkable, really, how close all the major streams of the Reformation were. And really, in the fundamental doctrines, there was unity. Now, as you start going through the catechism, you will soon pick out those various elements. You know, just to run through a few of them, when you think of the emphasis in Lord's Day 1, when it speaks about our only comfort is that we belong to Jesus Christ, there really you see the emphasis on soulless Christus, only Christ. Everything that you need for our salvation is found in Him alone, and that's our comfort. When you think of how the Catechism stresses that we are dead in our sins and trespasses and we need to be born again, then we have that sola gratia, only by, out of only out of grace. Indeed, does God come to us and take us dead sinners and make us alive again? And when you think of how in the last question and answer in Lord's Day 6, that is asked, well, from where do you know this, that Jesus Christ is the mediator? Well, we are told we know it from the Holy Gospel. but That points to all of Scriptures. You could say there we have a sola scriptura. But then, when we think of the next one, or the one we haven't touched on yet, sola fidei only by faith. Well, that topic is before us in Lord's Day 7. And seeing that you are close to the end of the Catechism, rather than break up Reverend Paul's series, I picked one close to the beginning, also one that ties in with the very theme of the Reformation that is very much in our mind this year, and also this week, with October 31st, only two days away. And so with that in mind, we look at the truth also summed up in Lord's Day 7, and we sum up the sermon in this way, that we are saved by faith alone. And we'll consider three things, why faith is important, what true faith is, and what faith includes. So, saved by faith alone, why faith is important, what true faith is, and what faith includes. Now we turn our attention, then, first of all, to the expression, why faith is Important, And in the process, we'll be interacting also with the ideas that were floating around that were rejected as they were prevalent in the Church of Rome. Well, it comes down to, and in a way you could say it's all very straightforward, that faith is the only way to be saved from our sins. And we know, of course, that the whole human race has fallen in Adam. All humanity shares and the curse over sin and under God's wrath. And now it's interesting that even though we know about the Lord Jesus Christ, and at one point is even called the last Adam, so there is a contrast you could say between Adam in paradise and our Lord Jesus Christ, we know that even though they have similar roles as they are representative for the people that they stand for, Adam for the whole human race, in that respect, the Lord Jesus Christ does not stand for the whole human race because not everyone shares in his saving work. His saving work is only for those who are joined to Christ through faith. And we know that this is a very clear testimony of Scripture. We should not drift in any way towards a universalism, as if Christ has completely overdone everything Adam has done, and therefore the whole human race is going to be saved. That's not how it is. You think of some various passages that bring it out very clearly that there is a distinction in the human race between those who are saved and those who are not. Very fundamental passage, John 3, verse 16 to 18. You know, it's often that people will quote verse 16, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. But we have to realize that if you read both, all those verses, 16 through 18, indeed it speaks about those who are saved when they believe in his son, But it also says that those who do not believe are condemned already. So there is no universal salvation. There is a distinction. And the distinction is those who believe and those who do not. There's also the clear teaching in the passages we read from Romans chapter 10 and 11. For in Romans, throughout the whole letter really, Paul has been stressing that there is no distinction between the Jews, the first covenant people, and all the Gentiles, the other people that were being gathered in after Pentecost. There's no distinction because no matter what you are, there is only one way to share in the salvation of Jesus Christ, and that is by faith in his name. In that respect, he quotes at one point Joel 2, verse 32, when he writes. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says that especially over against people of Jewish background who thought, well, there is a different way of salvation for Jews and Gentiles. No, Paul says, it's one who calls on the name of the Lord, who believes in Him. That person is going to be saved, no matter what his ethnic background may be. And we also noticed in Romans 11 how he described Israel as an olive tree and then he spoke about of course he's reflecting on the situation in the New Testament time when he was also puzzled by that why so many Jewish people did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ but then also he talks about and he says well many of those branches were broken off because of unbelief and then he talks about the Gentiles who were grafted in through faith, through believing. So notice again that believing becomes the critical point here. Those who believe are saved. Those who do not believe are not saved. No universalism. We notice of course in our reading in Romans chapter 11 that Paul's words had a warning tone because he was also impressing upon the Gentile readers of Gentile background that they were the wild branches who had been grafted in through faith. But He also urged them to remain faithful, to stand firm in the faith, because he says, well, just like the natural branches were cut off because of unbelief, you were grafted in because of belief. If you again fall away from the Lord, you will be cut off, and the people of Israel, if they turn to the Lord, can be grafted back in. So really emphasizing the significance of faith for salvation. We can think of many other passages that teach how we are saved by faith. You know, the Apostle Paul, he stresses the importance of faith in Romans chapter 4 when he speaks about Abraham. Abraham was not saved because he was circumcised. No, he was justified by faith before he was circumcised. Think of his response to the Philippian jailer who asked, what must I do to be saved? Now the jailer was only thinking how do I save my neck because the prisoners have escaped and really if a jailer did not keep his prisoners safe then he would lose his own life. So he was thinking of far more earthly terms you could say. But then Paul, he really brought to him the core of the gospel and he said believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul took it to a whole different level not just be saved from the acts of Caesar but how to be saved from the wrath of God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, while this may seem to be such a self-evident scriptural truth, you may wonder, well, how did they not know it anymore in the time of the Reformation? Why did a man like Luther find this like a new thing, a rediscovery of this fundamental truth? What had things come to? How was salvation being viewed at that particular point in history? Or was it really such a big point of division? Well, it's good to know that at a particular time, the Church of Rome had a completely different understanding and approach to how we are saved. Now, Rome would agree, and still agrees, that not everyone is saved. And they will even agree that there is a need for the Lord Jesus, although they will not just have Jesus exclusively. They reject the soulless Christus because they put Mary right beside him as a co-mediatrix. But for the point at issue here, about the role of salvation, they will not speak about faith at this point, but they will speak about baptism. It's remarkable. That whereas we are being taught here also in the Scriptures that only those who are by a true faith grafted into Christ, Rome basically said, the Lord Himself affirms that baptism... Is necessary for salvation. Notice they they replaced living faith in Christ, as the scripture teaches, with the ceremony of baptism. And they went so far as to say the church does not know of any other than baptism, any, any means other than baptism that assures entry into eternal beatitude. Notice that. They place the emphasis on the sacrament of baptism as actually giving salvation. And to give a fuller picture yet of what they teach, they still teach this, I mentioned that the paragraph concludes by saying God has bound salvation to the sacrament of baptism. Notice that? He has bound salvation to the sacrament of baptism. That's, That's what Rome says. But he himself is not bound by his sacrament. Now, why do they say that? Well, they, they want to leave the door open for those who have not yet been baptized, but might be learning about the Christian faith, or who die during that period of instruction. And even in that respect, their desire one day to be baptized would count. And they even leave room for those who have never even heard the gospel, that perhaps they might be saved. Because They reason, well, if they would have heard the gospel, they would have believed in Jesus. Of course, they completely deny, but also is made very clear by the Apostle Paul that how can you believe if you have not heard? And if you haven't heard, you can't come to faith. If you don't have faith, you can't have salvation. Now, I highlight these points of difference with the Church of Rome to also impress upon us, brothers and sisters, that the Reformation was not a tempest in a teapot where they squabbled over just a little misunderstanding or difference of opinion. No, it was fundamental. It was an issue about the sufficiency of Christ, that He has indeed paid for all our sins, but also about how the gifts of Christ are received. They denied that it happened through faith, as is taught in the Scripture, and they ascribed saving power to the water of baptism. But the Reformation looked to Scripture and said, it is by faith alone. And if you want to speak about baptism, well, baptism is a sign and seal that we are saved by faith alone, but baptism does not save us. Now, with the importance of faith as the only way to share in Christ's benefits imprinted on our minds, we turn to our second point, what true faith is. Now notice we speak of true faith. To borrow a term from the Belgian Confession, Article 24, we can also call this justifying faith. And we have to make these kind of distinctions. True faith over against false faith, justifying over against non-justifying faith, because there are is this thing called faith in the lives of people that looks like faith, but it isn't genuine faith. That's also evident in the uh, parable of the sower. We know how the Lord Jesus Christ described how seed, the same seed, fell on different kinds of soil. And some of that seed even fell on rather shallow soil, nice and warm and it sprouted very quickly, and it grew up very fast, and so someone would think, now look at that, that tremendous power of the gospel, how quickly it changed that person. But then also we know, once the sun came out and began to beat down upon that plant, because there was no depth of soil, because there was really no proper root, that withered just about as fast as it came. And also other seed that fell among the weeds. So it might begin, begin to grow up, it might look like faith, but then it was quickly choked out by the weeds. So we have to realize that not everything that looks like faith is genuine faith. But then what is genuine faith? What does that look like? If we continue to think about the parable of the sower, the first thing we can say about true faith is that it is tied to the gospel because the seed is indeed the Word of God. In today's terms, we would also say, well, it is tied to the Bible, because the Bible is the Word of God, is the good news of salvation. A point also reinforced reinforced by Paul in Romans chapter 14. Faith comes by hearing the Word. And also, the importance for faith comes out in the way the Lord Jesus Christ Commissioned his disciples just before he ascended into heaven to go and make disciples of all nations. Yes, they had to baptize him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but they also had to teach them all the things the Lord Jesus Christ had revealed. Now we see then that aspect of faith that is word based, that is Bible based. It requires an awareness of what the Bible is about. If you have never heard the message of the Bible, then you cannot come to faith. That's the simple truth revealed in Scripture. And also, faith not only has to be exposed to that word, but it has to accept that word. To say, yes, I believe it is true. You know that... The catechism now also refers to this as being a sure knowledge of what God has revealed in His Word. That sure knowledge, that aspect sure, brings out that there is a conviction that what is found in Scripture is the truth. It's not up for debate. But we recognize that sure knowledge is not all there is to faith. There can be a person who knows the whole Bible inside out and might even accept it as true, and yet that person does not have faith because there is a flip side to it, and that is that true faith also includes firm confidence. So, what we're talking about here is that that if the knowledge aspect is the head part, where we learn things, we take in information, the confidence part has it moved from the head into the heart, which then reflects our internal being. True faith is not just intellectual. It's also, you could say, emotional. It draws the whole person into it. So, true faith is a matter of head and heart. It is a matter of our whole being, where you say, it is true for me. Now, what is the heart so confident about? Well, it is this, that salvation, that is forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, that it is given to us out of grace for the sake of Christ. A faith that says, I believe this speaks to me. It's not just speaking to Mr. So-and-so or Sister So-and-so, it's speaking to me. And That very personal aspect comes out, for example, in In Job, in the Old Testament time, you know, Job, who had first enjoyed a very blessed life, and then he lost everything. Even his wife said to him, curse God and die. And you know that picture of Job that develops that he sits in the garbage dump somewhere, and he's scraping with a pot shirt all the itchy spots on his arm, and then he has friends coming to him who are kind of pouring vinegar on his soul because they say to him, Job, you know how it is. Bad things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to you. Therefore, you must be a bad person. That was their comfort. And in all that misery, and in the total lack of comfort, Job at one point says, chapter 19, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. That's faith. When everything in life seems to turn against you, and even God seemed to have turned against him, Job, Job said, but I know my Redeemer, and I trust in Him, and I know one day I'll see Him in a restored resurrection body, essentially. We can also think of Abraham. Abraham, who was promised numerous offspring, He was going to get the whole land of Canaan and there he was wandering around the land of Canaan getting older and older, having no heir. His wife getting older and older but but he believed God's promise. And he held on to that. That's faith. In spite of all the evidence to the contrary you believe the promises of God. It's the kind of faith that we see in the Apostle Paul. You know when he wrote the letter to the Philippians. He was sitting in jail, and he had the very likely prospect that he wouldn't get out, but he would be put to death for his faith. But Paul didn't sit there weeping and whining about the situation. No. He, he, he writes to his readers who are dear to him, and he hopes that perhaps he might be set free. But even when he thinks about death, that doesn't make him afraid. Because he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. You see again, all the external circumstances weighing down and the world closing in on you. But Paul, he looks beyond that. He looks to his Savior and looks forward to being with his Savior. You know, we also think of the Apostle Paul. More examples of that heartfelt expression when beginning of Romans 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he looks at it. We have peace with God. A jubilant expression. Or Romans 8, after he has described the whole internal struggle. He wants to do what is right. He does what is wrong. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. But then, Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And chapter 8 concludes by him saying, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, when you listen to those kind of expressions... And you know that true faith is not just that someone can quote Bible text after Bible text after Bible text. That he is an expert theologian. That's not just what faith is about. Yes, there is knowledge, but the knowledge has made its way down into the heart. There is intellectual assent to what the Scriptures have revealed about God's gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. And there is the internal assurance... What God is saying in his word, he's saying to me. Now, as we try to process how faith is a matter of head and heart, and keep in mind that, that Rome really had no regard for this matter. Rome simply said, ah, oh, just trust the church. Just be baptized. That's how you are saved. Your church will look after you. No, no, no. Scripture says, look in faith to Jesus Christ. Now, of course, this, this, this head part in a way is, is easy, you can learn all kind of facts, but the heart part is where we get into trouble. Because we might say, well, it's nice to say that it is a matter of internal assurance, but that sounds a bit idealistic, not realistic. Because there may be a longing also in our hearts to say, "Oh." I wish I would have that blessed assurance that Jesus is mine, but I'm not so sure what's wrong with me. But then we also have to keep in mind that the life of faith indeed has its struggles. If you read through the book of Psalms, that not every psalm is always a psalm that begins with great confidence. If you want to read... It's a really dark psalm. Read Psalm 88. And you think, no, that doesn't sound like a believer, but it is a believer struggling, wants to reach out for the Lord. He doesn't feel the presence of the Lord. That can happen. God's children might not always feel that assurance, though they want to believe it is true for them. Now, in this respect, we can think of some helpful words also from our of Dort. Where we find, for example, in chapter 5, verse article 11, it says there that scripture testifies that believers in this life have to struggle with various doubts of the flesh and placed under severe temptations do not always feel this assurance of faith and certainty of perseverance. That's the reality. We don't always feel on a spiritual high where everything is well. There can be many spiritual lows. And then continues by stating, but God, the Father of all comfort, will not let them be tempted beyond their strength, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape, and by the Holy Spirit will again revive them in the certainty of perseverance. That's what's promised. God will not leave his children alone. And they might not feel high, they will feel low. Then it says, keep on holding on to God. It also tells us how God goes about this. Article 14. It mentions that just as it has pleased God to begin this work of grace in us by the preaching of the gospel, word-based again, so he maintains, continues, and perfects it by the hearing and reading of his word, by meditating on it, by its exhortations, threats, and promises, and by the use of the sacraments. So that's how how this true faith begins. That's how it grows. When we have those dry spells in our life, then the worst thing we can say is, well, I'll take a break from God's Word. I'll take a break from going to church. That's a spiritual death sentence. No, we say... I might not feel it this way, but I want to listen to God because I know He works in this way. It's also mentioned this whole idea of the Holy Spirit, how He works at the end of our answer 21. Faith is worked by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. Notice that. Faith is worked by the Spirit through the gospel. We want to grow in knowledge. We want to grow in assurance. We have to keep listening to the gospel. That's why it's so important that we keep studying God's Word for ourselves, that we listen every Sunday again to the preaching of the Word. The Spirit is working on us. But notice in this, that in the talk of faith, you should not lose fight, sight of the fact that faith is the work of the Holy Spirit. And at those times when we struggle in our faith, we need to remember whose work it is and how He works and submit ourselves to it. Quite a contrast, again, to the way of Rome. They would say, well, you were baptized. If you're doubting your faith, go to the priest and make confession and receive the sacrament of penance, all kind of mechanical ways of passing on salvation and growing in assurance. No, the reformers said, go to God's Word. That's where the Spirit is working. When you are down in your faith, be busy with that Word. That's how you grow in your certainty of salvation. And then there remains one last point to consider, namely what true faith includes. And that's our last point. Now for this last point, in a way we we kind of circle back to the first aspect of faith, namely that sure knowledge. For what exactly is included in this knowledge? Yeah, we're talking here about the contents of faith. Now, of course, in a way it is simple. You simply need to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel. You could say we simply have to believe what we're told in the Bible. So we have that other emphasis again in the Reformation. Sola Scriptura. Look to the Word of God. But no sooner have we said that, than we're bound to feel a little bit Overwhelmed. Because the Bible, that's a pretty big book. How can we ever really grasp everything that is in it? Yes, we have heard those stories, many of us, since we're little children. And we know, you could say all the basic Bible stories, but then again, if someone asks us, what do you find in Isaiah chapter 45? Most of us will be left scratching our head. Or what's in Ezekiel 33? There are so many parts that we really haven't fully grasped the scripture is so so rich so how can we ever know for sure we got it all but then also we can remember that each of us we're not the first person to actually open the bible believers stand in a great company of believers and believers have been busy with the word of god ever since god began to reveal it to his people And thanks to that effort of the saints, you could say, throughout the ages, we have inherited what we could call a summary of the Bible, called the Articles of Our Catholic and Undoubted Christian Faith. But keep in mind, because it might seem like we're beginning to minimize it now, a summary. But a summary is not the Reader's Digest version of the Bible, where you get a really condensed edition and that's supposed to g- capture the gist of it. No, is a summary is more than that. A summary is something that expresses the overall teaching of Scripture. And if you want to understand what a summary really is, a very simple way of comparing that is to, to think of what children do in a math class. And then they get a bunch of figures on the board, and then the teacher says, well, add it up. And what do we call that answer? We call that the sum, the summary, because the summary, the sum, has all the parts wrapped into it. It's the same when we have also a summary in the 12 articles. Here, the church has added up different parts of Scripture and says, now, you put a line here, and what is the answer when we put those pieces together? So, the church, for example, has listened to all kind of Scripture passages about God, the Creator. And we know that He still upholds creation. We know that He is also our Father in Jesus Christ. And so then we sum it up and say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. That's not a reduction, but that is a compilation of many parts of Scripture. Now, we see even the apostles do this. That's why I also... We read together 1 Corinthians 15. There, Paul reminded his readers in a summary form of the gospel that he had taught them. But Christ, who died, who rose again, who was seen by many people, who ascended into heaven, elements we see also come back in our creed. Now, the summary mentioned at times is also called the Apostles' Creed, we know it by that name, but you know, of course, that name can be a little bit misleading because it gives the impression that the apostles wrote it. That's not the case. It contains the teachings as given by the apostles. So in that way, it's perhaps even better to refer to them as the 12 articles of our undoubted faith to kind of get away from the idea that the apostles actually wrote these themselves. But also when it is said that they are Catholic, it reminds us that they comprehend all the gospel, and they are also held by believers everywhere. And when we hear that it is undoubted, we are reminded that it is a sure knowledge of all that God has revealed. So when we also today use the words of the Twelve Articles of Faith, we are, in a sense, you could say, joining a choir These words have been said by believers in many different languages, many different parts of the world, and every time we sing them again, we just add our little voice to that great throng that has been singing this confession over many centuries. But now it should not escape our notice how what a Christian must believe is defined simply by these 12 articles. It's an interesting point. If perhaps in your bookshelf somewhere at home you still have an edition of the Book of Praise that was used before 1984, maybe not too many people have those anymore, it would be interesting to read the form for baptism and see how they simply refer to the articles of the Christian faith, whereas the present form goes a bit broader and refers to the Reformed Confessions, there's historical reason as to why that has happened, but it shouldn't escape our notice that even within our more extensive confessional documents, it is recognized that the 12 articles really form the core of the Christian faith of what one must believe. Now, why is that important to realize? Well, it's important to realize because... History has so many examples where insisting on agreement on more and more points of doctrine led only to more and more divisions in the church. You know, in that respect, as we think about the Reformation, we're thankful for that, what the Lord allowed to happen, to bring the gospel back to the forefront. You know we have to also acknowledge. At a time like this, the sad and shameful reality that the churches coming out of the Reformation seem to have become split happy. So So many divisions have taken place, and not merely because of different developments in different countries, but every country saw split after split after split. If you try to find out how many Protestant churches there are today, they're just beyond numbering almost. Now some of those divisions were necessary because people were departing from the truth and then others said, no, we want to go back to the gospel. But also many came about because of personalities, people who wanted to be the boss and they kind of made life difficult for other people or they wanted to define things beyond what reasonably can be defined from the Scriptures. You can make indeed so many distinctions that the only person you can agree with is yourself. And you can barely agree with yourself anymore at certain points. Then you break up the church of Jesus Christ time and time again. So we have to come back to that core. What must a Christian believe? There it is. We confess it together. The 12 articles of our Christian faith. And while in one way they seem minimalist, at the same time they encompass the richest of the gospel of salvation. In that way, they continue to serve as an easy way to recognize Christians all over the globe. It's also interesting. If you meet a group, what kind of group is this? Ask, them, ask this question. Do they even have the 12 articles of the Christian faith? And if they don't, then you have to be very suspicious because you have to say, well... Why wasn't that good enough for them? Why did they not want to add their voice to the choir that has been singing for all these centuries? Because we will see quite often if a group cannot even use these words but think they have to reinvent the wheel, they are a bit like a train where all of a sudden one car decides to disconnect and go on its own track. And when one car goes off track, it goes on its own way and becomes a sect. And so faithful at hearing to what is summed up in the 12 articles will bring out where there is unity and where there is disunity. And so we have focused on one of those reformation slogans, you could say, about being saved by faith alone. One of the rallying cries of the reformation. And we should be clear again on why faith is important and how that stands over against the idea that we are saved by baptism. No, baptism doesn't save you. We are saved by faith, saved by Christ. We should be clear on what faith includes. For God, in his grace, grafts us into Christ by faith. And in that way, we share all his benefits. And knowing how that Spirit, the Holy Spirit, works this faith let us make sure we keep on listening to the gospel, keep on faithfully coming to the worship services, faithfully reading God's Word, placing our children under the Word of God, placing others who we know, who we love, who we want to expose to the gospel, bringing them under the Word of God. For that is the way to grow in the knowledge and confidence that we truly belong to Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.